Hello, welcome to the first episode in 2020 of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, and Lieutenant General David Deptula. Today, we'll be discussing the escalation of events between the United States and Iran. We'll talk about possible next steps as well as implications for the entire globe. I'm going to turn it over to Rachel now. General Deptula, thanks so much for joining us today. Obviously, a lot of developments over the last few days um, interact around the, our growing tensions with Iran. Before we kind of get started on the next steps, would love your, to hear your point of view on uh, the administration's actions uh, over the weekend uh, with the strike on uh, the Iranian RRGC leadership and uh, you know the justification for that and maybe any sort of information you have on, on what initiated a strike of that significance. Um, well, thanks, Rachel. Uh, great to have the opportunity to, to chat about this, uh, uh, frankly, a momentous occasion uh, at the start of uh, uh, a new uh, decade in uh, 2020. Um, let me start as sort of at the top level first. I'd tell you that um, Iran has been severely weakened uh, by President Trump's sanctions and the growing unrest of its own citizens. Uh, and the recent uh, death of Soleimani uh, further destabilizes Iran's uh, power, uh, and it serves as evidence that even the most brutal oppressors are neither invincible uh, nor secure. Um, I would also share, uh, and this is a, a domestic concern, uh, that now is not the time for American partisan politics to offer a lifeline to a collapsing regime uh, in Iran determined to dominate the Mideast and export terrorism throughout the world. Now, all that said, I think the action to eliminate Soleimani needs to be put into the context of a three-part strategy. The first part uh, is to constrain Iran's malign activities. The second, to roll back Iran's influence in the region, specifically in Iraq, uh, and the third part is to deter further Iranian aggression. I'd tell you that the deterrent element is especially important. Um, now, securing interest through peaceful influence is really in America's long-term interest. And to deter Iran, its leaders need to believe that the U.S. is going to use its power. And I think we saw that. Uh, and I think they got the message. Uh, and we'll see if Kim Jong-un got the message, too. Uh, now, all of that said, while the Soleimani strike has changed the game, and I mentioned the three elements of the strategy we need to proceed on. The United States is only going to win if the strike, the recent strike, um, refocuses the end game of that above strategy on a concerted effort of pressuring the Tehran regime uh, until it collapses internally. Now, I'm not talking about forcing regime change externally, but we all know that um, the Iranian people are tired of suffering under uh, the, the uh, theocratic leadership in, in Iran. So I'll pause there uh, and offer um, uh, the other folks the opportunity to chat, but that's sort of my macro level uh, summary, and I'm happy to talk about um, uh, several second order consequences uh, later on. So you you discussed about you know how putting 
all the pressure that we've been putting on Iran over the last couple of years since we stepped away from the JCPOA um, and it being pretty effective. Obviously, the population is, uh, you know, there's a lot of discontent. Um, first question, uh, a strike on uh, Iranian leader of Soleimani's caliber. Does that have the potential to galvanize the population um, and reinforce Iranian leadership messaging against the United States? Um, and second, obviously, there's a huge difference between uh, the sort of elite IRGC membership, the loyalty and um, ideological entrenchment of something like the IRGC compared to maybe the more conventional forces within Iran. Can you discuss the difference between, you know, who um, who really supports the government population and military wise and maybe where there is uh, more uh, of a fracture in support? Um, yeah, those are two uh, very uh, appropriate, pertinent, and important questions. Um, with respect to the first one, the Iranian leadership would like the rest of the world to believe that, um, that it does uh, galvanize um, uh, the, 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 the nationalistic uh, perspectives of not just the leadership, the country's leadership, but the people. Uh, but look, this is a, uh, this is a suppressed population. Uh, and, and the Iranian people are an interesting uh, uh, society. They make up an interesting society. And they have been conditioned to say what they need to say in order to survive. So I'd be very, very careful uh, about um, looking at pictures. As a matter of fact, I've already saw um, this morning, uh, late yesterday, that you know the supposed uh, uh, massive crowds... Um, many of those pictures have been uh, doctored and you can actually see the replication of various groups inside the same frame uh, to make it look like there are a lot more people than there actually are. Um, so look, anytime a, a nation state comes under attack, there is a tendency for the people uh, to galvanize. But I think uh, that is very, very shallow. Much of what we saw was simply... Uh, manipulation of the media. Um, we have to understand in the United States that uh, uh, virtually every other nation around the world uh, has an active effort ongoing uh, as part of their governments to manage perceptions. The United States does not. We are horrible at strategic communications, but that's a subject for another topic. I'll just say we have to be careful about the galvanization line uh, particularly when it comes to Iran, because we know that their population has been suppressed. Um, I mean, Soleimani was responsible for, had the direct involvement of killing over a thousand uh, Iranian citizens just within the last couple of uh, months, those that um, were um, protesting against the regime. Um, now, with respect to the answer to your second question, uh, the difference between sort of the traditional military uh, uh, service components inside Iran and the IRGC uh, and the Quds Force. Um, uh, clearly, uh, the Quds Force and the IRGC um, are you know, the closest to following the tenets that the, the, the mullah and the leadership of Iran, they're sort of like the Praetorian Guard um, versus the nominal service components that uh, perhaps um, are not as trustworthy. 
so I'd just summarize the comparison between the two in that fashion. Yeah, I guess my question would be, if we are wrong and Iran decides to escalate or you know, pick up the fight in the coming days or weeks, what would we look for? What would we see? Where would they most likely do that if they decide to not follow what seems the logical advice or the logical path? Well, Peter, if I, I would tell you that, um, look, these folks are uh, a smart adversary. You can see it in their response that occurred in, in uh, just the last uh, 24 hours. Um, they, they're very cautious. They've got the deterrent message. Um, they understand now, uh, after the president's response in eliminating uh, Soleimani, uh, they most likely don't want to poke the bear again uh, in a direct fashion. Um, so uh, I think you'll see them move toward the more their more traditional use of proxies and actions um, that they can deny direct involvement. Uh, you know, they, they still haven't claimed responsibility for the attack on the oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia, which clearly was uh, Iranian in nature. Um, and we also need to be careful about um, being too hesitant in identifying what we actually know are Iranian actions. But back to your question, I think you're going to see responses in the context of uh, deniability, uh, probably much more low level than the use of uh, short range of ballistic missiles, uh, and most likely against uh, the other nations and our allies in the region, not directly against U.S. personnel. That makes sense. Yeah, and the one thing, I, there's kind of two questions that I'm looking at right now, kind of, you know, from a you know, down-the-road perspective. One is, how do how does Iraq work? Can Iraq disentangle themselves from Iran, or is that going to be difficult? And then, I, I keep getting very worried now what the end game is for Iran, in that we have economic sanctions which we're going to continue to apply, which we're taking its toll and cause them to behave. So do they come to the table ever, or do they get forced down a path where they feel they make them do some last-ditch effort to, you know, fight us again? And those are kind of the two, I know they're very different questions, but I think those are two things that are going to be important over the coming months is how does Iraq play out, and what is the end game for Iran as we reapply sanctions? Yeah, I think... Continue to apply sanctions. Um, Peter, I think those are critical questions. They're, they're very incisive uh, and kind of get to the bottom line point. Um, with respect to the second one first, you, you know, how does Iran deal with this? How do we get to uh, an end game that doesn't result in a conflagration in the, in the Middle East? Do they come back to the table? Uh, those are all TBD, you know, to be determined. Um, I think that um, it would be prudent, um, and I would not be surprised if their back-channel efforts, um, even given the bellicose nature of the uh, uh, events of the last couple days, um, I, I am sure their back-channel efforts to uh, encourage uh, a, a movement toward discussions uh, to get to that issue of endgame, because clearly the, the Iranian leadership sees where this is going. If they continue to get choked off economically, 
Um, it's just going to foment uh, additional dissension inside uh, Iran. So they're, they're playing a real tough, they're in a real, real tough position here. As much as they hate the United States uh, and, and pose it as their great Satan, um, they realize that we also can uh, ease sanctions uh, and provide them the means to survive. So they've got to be discussing how to do that right now. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, that's not a definitive answer, but I think that there is uh, a track of uh, getting to some sort of negotiation. Uh, at first, it'll probably be through third parties, but perhaps at some point it may be direct uh, U.S.-Iranian uh, discussion. Now, your first question, how does Iraq disentangle itself um, from the oppression and the infiltration, if you will, of Iranian perspectives uh, and, and, and leadership into the Iraqi government, that's going to be tough. Um, but that's part of, uh, there, there are, let's not dismiss the fact that it can't be done, uh, because I think that there are many people, perhaps a majority of the leadership in Iraq, uh, doesn't want to see that Iranian influence. And in fact, You've seen, you know, the, 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 the demonstrations of the young people um, in Iraq. Um, you know, they're tired of the fighting. They're tired of the influence of the Iranians that they see. That's why they've had these demonstrations. Once again, Soleimani was involved in the killing of over 1,000 demonstrators and wounding of over 20,000. Uh, the families of those members are, are ecstatic that um, he's been removed from the battle space. Uh, how do we go about disentangling these things? Frankly, that's not something the United States um, needs to be uh, active in accomplishing. That kind of disentanglement has to come from within. Uh, now, you know, working with those individuals in Iraq who want to get rid of the Iranian influence, um, yeah, we ought to talk to them and, and help them where we can, but we, we, we can't get in the middle of that discussion. I mean, doing things like making the leadership realize that, hey, you know, it's not in your best advantage uh, to eject um, uh, American uh, service personnel who are here in Iraq to train your military to help you be more secure. Uh, and, you know, getting across the truth and the rationale for why we're there, I think will go a pretty long way in uh, having uh, rational uh, solutions uh, uh, carry the day in Iraq. Great answer, General. One last thing I was just going to add, and I've been getting some pushback on this, but I'm becoming of a belief that, one, geopolitics is going to play an important role the global economy, global markets for the coming months. But I'm becoming a little bit more convinced within that there's a real chance of some positive surprises where instead of, you know, escalation across the board, by redrawing the lines in the sand and letting our enemies and you know, those who are against us know that we will not let things go on, that they're putting some fear back into them, that it may actually encourage some good behavior and come up with some actually surprisingly good results for the global economy and global peace. Is that crazy or is that something you could see playing out? No, I don't think it's crazy at all, Peter. I think it's, 
It, it is, uh, you know, one of the first things that I thought of after sort of settling down on the immediacy of the, the region is what does Kim Jong-un think about all of this? Um, and, and uh, you know, there's a variety of different options and it's difficult to tell. Um, but does he see this as an opportunity to resume uh, nuclear and intercontinental ballistic missile testing because the United States has its hands full? Um, or does he believe that President Trump now uh, is too dangerous to be uh, messed with and uh, he, he, he better lie low? Um, so, I, frankly, I think the second of those uh, potentials is the one at work here. And that could lead uh, to a uh, situation uh, that you uh, talk about in the context of uh, getting to a better place with tensions in uh, Northeast Asia. Uh, now, on that, on that point, and I don't want to uh, digress too much, with respect to North Korea, um, I, I think it's really interesting, and, and I will share with you all that I, in the audience, that I just came back from 10 days in China, uh, where I spoke at a security conference in uh, Beijing and uh, uh, to a couple other uh, security uh, think tanks, uh, and with the uh, uh, Chinese equivalent of their, our National Defense University. One of the things that I was told in a sidebar um, is that uh, China is still a key player in any resolution to the situation. Uh, and there's one avenue uh, that may motivate uh, Kim uh, to denuclearize, and that's if China can convince him that they would provide a nuclear umbrella for North Korea. Uh, then there would be no need for Kim to maintain his own nuclear force. Uh, and uh, frankly, that, that was kind of surprising to hear, uh, but I think it's also uh, an option that holds the greatest potential for a breakthrough in the near term. So we'll see what happens in that regard. But I, I, I fully concur with your supposition and don't think it's crazy at all. Thanks very much. In the last few weeks and months, we've seen an increased cooperation between Russia, China and Iran. In fact, they hosted joint military drills last month. Um, you know, how do you see... Russia responding to this, um, China, how, how are they going to, to respond now that the situation has escalated? Um, and then we're, you know, negotiating on different fronts and um, have tensions, you know, on different fronts with both those nations. Um, Rachel, again, a great question. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because um, the exercise that you referred to is a joint maritime exercise. And it's the first time that Iran has conducted naval exercises with Russia and uh, China. I think it's a uh, prelude of future cooperation amongst those three nations. Uh, a matter of fact, there was a Chinese defense spoke spokesman that mentioned that that event is actively building a maritime community with a shared future. Um, so we don't even have to make the supposition that Chinese are saying this is an indication of uh, growing cooperation. Uh, I think that the, the real implications here are the fact that you've got Russia and China working um, with Iran. Uh, and the major question is, from these exercises, will that embolden Iran uh, because uh, China and Russia are now actively exercising with them to take further aggressive action uh, uh, in the future? 
And the second major question there is, will Russia and China stand behind any such acts on the part of the Iranians? Well, we've, we've kind of seen that um, since that exercise less than a month ago, um, we've got in this uh, uh, conflict situation um, with Iran, uh, and you don't see a whole lot coming out of Russia and China. Um, I think that they are... Uh, uh, they're waiting to see how the situation will evolve. Uh, I think one of the factors, we haven't talked about it yet, um, but there are some who are postulating that the Iranians might take action to close the Straits of Hormuz. Well, uh, the biggest impact that that would have is on uh, damaging one of their biggest allies, and that's China, because China gets 30% of its crude oil out of the Persian Gulf. Um, you know, the United States, not so much. We are uh, uh, much more, uh, and in fact, uh, can rely on our own um, oil uh, sources and uh, not that dependent on what's coming out of the Middle East. So I think that's very significant, that the fact that they did have these exercises. But I think because of the president's um, positive uh, and uh, strong action, uh, that's had a deterrent effect. Um, not only just on countries like North Korea, but on China and Russia as well. And the only thing I'd like to add to the general's comment is it's almost shocking that we can have this entire discussion about Iran and Iraq and only mention oil at the very end. And that really is a function of the fact that we become energy independent. But I think one thing to add to the calculus that's going on is Europe and Japan and China are both much more dependent on bread crude than we are. Their economies are also, you know, on the cusp of having some problems. So they have to be very cautious about escalating anything in that region. So I think the economic impact of what higher oil prices hurts China, hurts Japan, hurts Europe, and it's pretty indifferent and maybe even a mild positive to the U.S. So that's a very different discussion than we would have had 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. And I think it helps force China not to want to escalate this. China, if anything, I think benefits from a de-escalation. So that, again, I think plays into this concept that all these actions, while kind of causing this near-term escalation, may have some positive impacts around the globe as everyone is actually incentivized to calm things down and reach better solutions. I agree wholeheartedly, Peter. Well said. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions to this conversation, and thank you to our listeners for taking the time. We love sharing our geopolitical and macro strategy research with our clients and friends. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you would like to engage with our geopolitical experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Again, I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and thank you for taking the time today.